When I put a shout out in one of the Facebook groups for guests, a woman called Sharon Pakir responded and she had this incredible story about trauma through birth and dance. Now, I will say, trigger warning, if you are pregnant and not wanting to hear, you know, horrific birth stories, tune out now. If you are processing some birth trauma for yourself, it's just a bit of a warning. We do go really deep into Sharon's birth story and it's all there and it is very traumatic. And there's also some beauty in this story. There is Uh, you know, it's a story of resilience and how incredible our bodies really are and how they can be used in expression. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Sharon Pakir. Creativity, self-expression and feeling. Creativity, self-expression, and feelings. Make some noise, 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 make some noise. Not only it's a podcast. Okay, let's hear it. Hi, Carly. I'm Sharon, and I'm from Melbourne. I am originally from Singapore, but I've lived in Melbourne for the last 18 years of my life, and I have a very interesting story, but that my story actually is something that really spoke to me when you put out your call for this podcast, because I've actually never told this story publicly. I have written about it. I've written about it extensively on my social media accounts, on my Instagram and my Facebook publicly, and I've gotten lots and lots of coverage of it, but I've never spoken about it with the spoken word, if you know that, what I mean. And so it really hit me because everything you talked about using creativity to assuage our grief and trauma really spoke to me because that's exactly what I've spent the last two years of my life doing. And my two roles as a coach, I'm a coach in one of my works and I own a dance studio and I am a professional dancer and an artist and have been for the last 20 years. And I've often thought in my journey to recovery that if I hadn't had these two perfect jobs, you know, the creative job that allowed me to explore my body and my heart artistically and also my coaching job that allowed me to actually understand the practicalities around resilience and recovery, that I probably wouldn't have survived what had happened to me. And so many medical professionals have come to me and said, I cannot believe that you have survived this. And I went, well, I actually think it's because of exactly who I was before this happened. Yeah. I mean, and the coaching element, because there's also, I feel like with the with the coaching element anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, there's also this sense of uh being connected to something bigger than our own problems and our own minds. <laughs> Would you agree? You know, I yeah. felt right from the beginning, I felt like my journey, you know, literally I was in hospital having woken up from a coma and I sat there thinking, what can other people learn from this? How can I help other people with what I'm going through? And my husband said to me, you have to not make this public. Like, you know, you're still not out of the danger zone. You're still hooked up to machines. And I said, no, I know that. I'm going to sit on this, but I'm already thinking about you know, how what I what's happening to me actually serves my work in such a bigger, profound way. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning of that story. Yes. So I've been married for a few years. We've had a baby. We had a lot of trouble having babies. And I think a lot of women can relate to this. We 
um, got pregnant, lost two babies, one in the second trimester, one in the first trimester. And it was really rough because I felt like the odds were all against me. And because I was uh, in the public sphere already, and I was quite public about my losses because in the dance world, you cannot hide a bump. Mm, and I was so competing true. internationally at events in little costumes and people could tell, you know, within eight weeks that I was pregnant. So I had to be quite open about loss. And a lot of people were making commentary about how dancing was really probably making my babies die. And it was <gasps> really quite rough for me. Whoa. Yeah, it was oh my really, God. Really quite rough for me. So I found the losses very, very profoundly impactful. And also being a healthy, athletic person who doesn't smoke, who doesn't do drugs, who really just lives a very clean lifestyle of dance and being very active and very fit, I found it really difficult to process that this would happen to me. And I think a lot of women feel that way when we have losses. And a lot, it's so common as well to have mm. losses, but no one talks to you about it until you open up about it. Yeah, I think it's and one so, in four pregnancies. Is one something? in three. One in three. One in three. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy common and we don't talk about it and society encourages us not to talk about it. And with my third pregnancy, I had to go on pretty severe hormones and both my jobs are very public facing, which meant I didn't have the luxury of hiding in a room and being miserable when they were striking. And um, so I had a really rough pregnancy, but you know what? That baby emerged safe and sound um, four weeks early in an emergency C-section with preeclampsia. And you know what? I handled all that fine. Everyone was saying, you know, you've had you've had a rough go. And I said, no, actually, I feel okay. But my fourth pregnancy came along and that one was difficult from the start. And I remember just not being able to dance as much as I did in my other ones. I remember just feeling slow. And in my 28th or 29th week of pregnancy, it started feeling really bad. And so I went to my obstetrician and I said to him, I'm feeling really lousy. I can't even walk around the block. And I know my second trimester is supposed to feel magical. And there I was, 29 weeks pregnant. He's given me a full workup and he scanned me and everything. And he said, nothing's wrong, but you're the mother. And I'm going to believe you. And I'm going to ask you to go on bed rest for four weeks. And at 33 weeks, we can reassess. But please, let's try not to have the baby between then and now. And I said, okay. I went home and four hours later, stabbing pain started in my stomach. So we put my toddler down to bed. We're sitting down to have some pizza because I can't cook. And I'm about to bite into my slice of pizza and stabbing pains erupted. It was like that scene in Men in Black when aliens are erupting out of the tummy of the human being. And it was crazy. I was on the floor screaming. And I'd never experienced labor because my first one was a C-section, uh, emergency C-section. So I'd never experienced labor, but I knew this wasn't labor. And I screamed to my husband to call my obstetrician. And he called him and he said to me, he said to my husband, is that Sharon in the background? And he said, yes. And he said, don't wait for an ambulance, throw her in the car and bring her straight to the hospital. Now I was delivering at a private hospital that doesn't deliver babies before 32 weeks. And I was 29 weeks pregnant. So we were taking a huge risk in even turning up there, but my doctor was very adamant. That's what we should do. My husband drove us to the hospital and it was nine or seven when this started. Thankfully, I live not very far from the hospital at all. It was about nine 17, I think, when we rocked up to the hospital. And in the car all the way there, I couldn't actually put my bum on the seat of the chair. I was up in the air, writhing around, screaming out the window because I was losing oxygen. And at one point, my husband thought I died because my eyes rolled back in my head and I'd gone limp. And actually what had happened is that I had felt the drain of life coming out of me and I knew I was dying and I saw my dead father. And so everything stopped for about a minute and I'm not religious or spiritual or anything like that. And everything went white. 
the pain went away and I saw my dead father and he said to me, you have to go. And he pushed me away from him. And I was screaming, saying, no, I want to be with you, Papa. You know, I want to be with you. And um, he just left and the pain came screaming back. And I was back in reality in the car with my husband. And all I could hear was him shouting, you have to wake up, Shai. You have to wake up. Open your eyes. And so I turned to my husband and I said, I'm going to die in this car, Stephen. We've got to, you've got to get me there. We got to the hospital I parked right out the front on Victoria Parade, which is one of the main roads in mm. Melbourne. We mm. don't park on that road. <laughs> we did. <laughs> he carried me out and um, they were already waiting for us. The lift doors were open and I was screaming and flailing so hard that I fell on the floor of the lift and I was screaming and screaming and screaming. And um, the nurses tell me that I was literally reaching out to anyone that I could see as we passed saying, please save me, please save my baby. And the lift doors open at delivery suite and Funnily enough, at a private hospital with no emergency department, at 9.30 on a Thursday night, there was an obstetrician and a pediatric surgeon just standing there. And they'd been there to see other patients and they were getting ready to go home. And they saw me and they thought something's very wrong. They called the code blue. They took me into the birthing suite. They quickly realized that I must be hemorrhaging. So I, I wasn't bleeding at this stage, but my blood pressure was, I heard them saying something like 60 over 47, which is imminent death. And they um, said, no, we've got to get her to ICU. And I was very lucky that this obstetrician who was standing there actually ordered blood. And she she said, no, we've got to order blood. We're ordering five liters. And I could hear her say that. And I just kept begging someone, please save my baby. I'm going to die. I I was certain of it. Please just save the baby. Anyway, they took me on a stretcher downstairs. And by this stage, there was three other obstetricians and anesthetists, seven nurses. You know, it was just a hellhole of noise really and I just remember screaming through it and I remember them saying we're losing her we've lost her and they were holding my hands and holding my legs down and in my head I was screaming no I'm here I'm here I'm alive but they assured me that I was completely unconscious at this stage so I remember I could remember where every surgeon was standing I could remember which nurses were in the room but they say I was completely unconscious which is kind of crazy and very traumatic because you you don't believe yourself your own knowledge of what actually happened so my surgeon had just arrived at that point and they, this is really, really crude, but they, they shoved the thing in me. It was the most painful pain I'd ever felt in my life. He said to me, I don't know if you can hear me, but your baby's alive. We're going in to get him. And they put me in an induced coma because I was already that far gone. Um, I don't know how gory you want me to get, but basically when they opened me up, they found three liters of blood fell out of me. Wow. So I'd already hemorrhaged three liters of blood. Um, the baby was nowhere to be seen. My uterus had ruptured. And this is a very rare 0.07% of all pregnancies this happens in. They taught in midwifery school that you never see one. So when you're training to be a midwife, they tell you you're never going to see one. So don't worry about it. And if you see one, there's not much you can do. They're probably going to die. So um, that happened. And they were apparently cleaning up all the blood whilst my surgeon kept working. He had to cut through my bladder to find my baby who was now swimming around in my abdominal cavity in blood. My 29-week boy, Harry, he was born not breathing. And all this time, my husband's outside. He has no idea. He thinks I'm in labor. That's all that's happening. So anyway, they've carried the baby out. The pediatric surgeon's got the baby, and they've carried him to the special care nursery to resuscitate him. They've walked past my husband, and my husbands they've gone, come with us. And my husband watches them for 45 minutes as they resuscitate Harry. And I've just stopped saying the baby because I actually use that as a term to – 
this didn't really happen to us. Yeah, but yeah, they distance were resuscitating. yourself from it. Yeah, and they were resuscitating Harry for 45 minutes and Stephen suddenly realised that he hadn't heard about me at all. So he followed the paediatric surgeon to the table where they were working on the baby and he said, is everything okay? And the surgeon said, oh, look, he's just started breathing. I don't know how he's going to go. 29 weeks are pretty, you know, but we've got to transport him to the women's hospital because we can't treat him here. So can you sign these forms? So Stephen's signing these forms and he goes, but how is he? And he said, well, look, he's pretty acidic because of your wife's uterine rupture. He, he's got blood, you know, in him. So because of your wife's uterine rupture and Stephen goes, oh, all right. And he goes to sit down and he Googles uterine rupture and it says oh, highly cat- catastrophic, usually fatal, you know, and oh he's now God. oh my God, my wife's my wife's in this room. It seems like such a bizarre way to, like your poor husband. Out. Oh, my God. Well, and then he realized he had to call my mum and my sister who were in Singapore. So he's called my mum and my sister. My mum luckily was at a dinner and was didn't answer her phone. My sister is at dinner with her in-laws and two of her in-laws are doctors. And she's gone to them at dinner. My, my sister's had a uterine rupture and her sister-in-law apparently said something like, and did she survive? And my sister went, what? I, I don't understand. What do you mean, did she survive? What? And so, because most cases of, I found out since then that most cases of prematurity, that the mum's usually not in danger. It's usually the babies who's in high danger. And it, to have a mum and a baby in ICU at the same time is really rare, maybe one a year at the hospital. So it's it was kind of crazy for everyone involved. Mm. Long story short, he spent the next two hours sewing me up. I've got the best surgeon in the world. Love him to death now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he couldn't actually save, he couldn't actually give me a hysterectomy on the spot because he. I'd lost four liters of blood by this stage. And that's pretty much your entire body. And so he just sewed everything up. My uterus had ruptured in three places. So usually a uterine rupture would happen on an old C-section scar on the horizontal line. Actually, my uterine rupture happened upwards and in two spots. So my wow. uterus was in three pieces, completely spontaneous, no labor, brought it on. If you Google it, there's pretty much no incidence of it that ever happens um, spontaneously like that. And it had happened. So he sewed me up, sewed my bladder up, sewed my uterus to my bladder to anchor it, sewed my cervix up, all the rest of it, and um, left me in ICU to hope. And my baby was sent to the women's hospital. So if you can imagine, my husband was sent home to look after my toddler and said he'd be back in the morning um, and everyone just waited. So I w- woke up in ICU the next morning. And when you're in ICU, there's a nurse at the end of your, each person's bed. And I woke up and I had a flat tummy, no recollection of anything that had happened besides the screaming and the anguish and no baby. And I didn't know what had happened. And I thought maybe I was dead. Maybe this was the other world. And then until the nurse started getting very frantic and saying, you have to go back to sleep now. You, you're not ready to wake up. And I went, oh, where's my baby? And then he freaked out, actually. And he said, let me go call the ICU surgeon. So he goes and the ICU surgeon actually had slept overnight in the hospital so that she could be there when I woke up. Wow. And she walked in and she did this and tears. And she went, you're awake. You woke up. And then I knew something very bad had happened because if the ICU surgeons roar with emotion, something really bad has gone down. And I said, again, where's my baby? And she said, I need you to understand what happened first. And then I got really frantic and I said, where's my baby? And she said, okay, your baby's at the women's and I think we can possibly call them and find out what's going on. 
So we called the women's and they're so used to the, in the NICU, he was in the highest level of NICU. I didn't know this at the time, but I didn't know how much in danger he was as well. And they put me on FaceTime and I met my baby on FaceTime. Wow. And, um, I remember thinking to myself, well, that's okay. We're both alive. I didn't actually know how much danger we were in even then. We're both alive. And I didn't actually know how I looked. So my husband arrives. I've met him on FaceTime. The ICU surgeon, the, you know, the consultant, then all the various surgeons who were there came one by one to my bed to give me a long time of debrief. And I remember sitting there going, guys, we're okay. I don't know what you're so upset about. Like, everything's good. And my husband came and took a picture of me. And when I look at that picture now, I had 12 machines behind me, wires everywhere, intubated, black lips, black face. It was just, I was so in survival mode, I didn't even know it. Nine days passed before I met my baby. Wow. So I wasn't, I wasn't able to leave the hospital after such a massive blood transfusion. And I had lots of trouble because I couldn't produce milk and the midwives of the NICU were insistent that I produce milk for my dying baby. Um, we didn't know if Harry would survive. We didn't know if I would survive. So it was just a bit of a touch and go for the first few days. And on the eighth or ninth day, my um, obstetrician walked into my hospital room and I was, I think I was ready to kill myself to tell the truth. And he said to me, you need to go meet your baby. You have to, um, you know, there's nothing for it. And so after eight days of FaceTiming my baby every day, I was able to finally leave the hospital just for half an hour to go meet him. And when we got there, they said we couldn't meet him because he was due to have a procedure. And now being so far removed from your newborn, I didn't even know he was going to have a procedure because he was in that much um, need that they couldn't wait for me to, you know, okay anything. So imagine rocking up to the hospital to meet your newborn for the first time and not knowing he was about to undergo a procedure. And I felt like the most failed mum. You know, you felt you feel like you can't be there for your baby who is so desperately vulnerable. Um, but they, 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 all the seven doctors actually prolonged the, the start time for the procedure just so I could hold him. So I managed to hold him. He was about that little. He was about a kilo. And, um, and it was so bizarre because he was screaming and screaming and screaming in the incubator with all the tubes hooked up to him. And as soon as they put him on me and in my dress, for Qualicare, he stopped crying. And it was the most profound moment of my life. Mm. You know, I just went, I had a catheter strapped to me. I couldn't walk. I couldn't really hold him. He had to be strapped to me almost. He had all these wires coming out from the blanket and there we were together. Mm. So for the next... And your body's week, doing exactly what they needed to do. You know, like that. that's just so incredible. I'm getting teary just thinking about it. Like just even though your body is completely wrecked and and this newborn baby that shouldn't even be out in the world is there trying to fend for itself and you bring them together and in their you know yeah it just comes together and and this beautiful yeah amazing yeah and I remember so funnily when we were leaving the hospital I had to drug myself up you know get my full dose of morphine before I could even leave the hospital and I remember putting lipstick on and my husband looked at me and went honey I'm pretty sure that's the least of your concerns right now. (laughs) And I said, hell no, I'm meeting the most amazing human being. I'm putting my lipstick on. I am, I am going to meet him beautiful. You know, he's going to know his mummy really wanted to meet him. Yeah. And it's so funny putting on lipstick, you know, you do that for a date or 
for a big occasion. And for me, that was so profoundly important, even though I was there dying. <laughs> you, you do funny things, I think, in the moment that you don't see the significance of until the moment itself. So I spent a total of two and a half weeks in hospital, and then I was sent home to recover with a catheter in um, for my bladder. And my baby, Harry, he spent a total of 11 weeks in hospital. Um, three weeks after I came out of hospital, he stopped breathing again. And so he had two more cord blues called, had to be resuscitated again, did the hospital dance between hospitals. And then he was sent back to the highest level of NICU. And what this means is that you walk into the hospital and I was only spending about an hour a day with him in total because I couldn't drive and I couldn't walk. So my friends would pick me up. My neighbors would come pick me up, drive me to the hospital, leave me there for an hour. And someone else would come pick me up and bring me home. The community just came together beautifully for me. And I walked into the NICU and he was next to the brain dead baby, the vegetable baby and the baby who was clearly not going to make it. So there's four babies in that room. And that's just a horrifying feeling when you think we've already survived. Five weeks ago, we survived the biggest thing that could possibly happen. I mean, my obstetricians delivered 20 babies and he thought that we were his top three highest risk cases. And um, why, why is this happening again? And then to watch your little premier baby have blood transfusions and three rounds of antibiotics and, but I couldn't even be there for those things, you know? So it was really horrible that I had to hear about it on the phone or on FaceTime and yeah, just completely powerless, you completely know? powerless yeah. and completely separate. And then yeah. also having to put on a brave face for your toddler. So I had an 18 month old at home who I just disappeared from his life one night and I became a vegetable for the next four months, pretty much. And so it was just awful. And what that meant was that anyone who had a cough cold who came near me would give me a horrible illness. And so I actually came down with bronchitis and gastro together. And I had hundreds of stitches inside of me, oh. coughing, vomiting, having diarrhea was just, I, my husband came home one day and found me fainted in the bathroom with vomit, poo, and I was unconscious. And I literally ejected myself into an unconscious state. That meant I couldn't visit Harry for three weeks. And as any mum knows, that is well, any human being knows that is just, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy to not be able to visit your baby in the NICU. So I had, had to have friends come pick up milk from me, drop it off at the hospital for him. I had to get better. I went on three different rounds of antibiotics myself um, to clear everything before I could see him again. And, and that was the only time in my whole life that I've actually thought about taking my life. And that was such a horrible place to be for someone who's so resilient, who's a coach who teaches resilience for a living that was just a place that I couldn't fathom. You know, I'd been through so much in my life and nothing had prepared me for this. And I got through that horrible day, that darkest day of my life and slowly came back to health. And eventually when I was ready to come home, uh, ready to go see him, he was actually ready to come home. So 11 weeks later, he was given the all clear and was ready to come home. And I hadn't seen him for a month and I was bringing home this baby I hadn't seen. So we went and found out that in all those weeks where I wasn't able to keep up with his progress, actually what they'd found out, what they'd assessed and determined was that he was actually pretty healthy apart from a brain bleed, a hole in his heart and deafness. And I remember saying to the surgeon, you know, are we worried about this? And he looked at me and said, you are thanking your lucky stars. He's going to be a largely normal little boy. And after what you went through, he should have been 
in he should have been so brain damaged you know he should have had lungs that collapsed he should have had a digestive system that didn't work and he has thrived and so that was a brilliant way for someone to put it to me you know the outcome of what we had so 18 months have passed now and hundreds of doctors appointments later i'm really happy to report that i managed to go back to dancing myself harry is thriving he's had an ear operation which means he can hear his brain and heart have resolved so he's a happy healthy little boy we got the all clear a couple of months ago um and i went back to work both in coaching and in dancing and performed internationally again which is kind of crazy but throughout all of the 18 months and the millions of recovery processes we had to go through emotionally mentally and physically and reconnecting as a family and all those things that come with big trauma in birth um I was still in a lot of pain. And so nine weeks ago, I had a full abdominal hysterectomy to remove and clear up everything. And here I am in recovery right now. So this is where we're having this conversation. Wow. Where I finally feel like we have some closure, but I still have another few months to go. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. That went for a long time, <laughs> no, didn't it? <laughs> no, that is the most incredible. You know, this is so funny. Every time I every time I jump on a interview, I set like a little mini intention just because of my um, lifetime with anxiety. I often just need something to anchor to, and <laughs> and I was actually <laughs> too much information was on the That's toilet. Right. I was on the toilet setting the intention for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and That's it was thinking happens. <laughs> yeah, <that's it. laughs> and I was like, my intention for this conversation is for it to be a moving conversation. And I mean, oh my god, what a like, what an incredible story of. I mean, trauma. I mean, the grief that you must have experienced through that time. Yeah. Like, and surrendering to, you you would have to have been surrendering to, like, having zero control on a second-by-second second basis. Yeah, and, you know, for a dancer, I think particularly for being a, a professional dancer, you are so used to having full control of your faculties. Yes the immense mental strength it takes to go on stage and execute everything you've learned in 20 years in two minutes, uh, competition. And be totally present, you know, like you need totally in, in dance or any of those performance-based, you know, expressions, you do need like, the, well, the best performances are when you're completely present and in your body, you know, yeah, yes. emotionally and just, yeah. Psychologically and also yeah. having control of your body. Yeah. You know, to to surrender to the ravaging pain to surrender to, for example, having to produce breast milk and pump when your uterus shrinks normally when you produce breast milk and my yeah. uterus had hundreds of stitches in it, you know, just to know that that was about to happen and to sit there and look at the midwife and say, all right, give me the pump. You know, I know what's about to happen for the next three hours, <laughs> seven times a day, mm. um, being drugged up, so drugged up that you really have no remembrance of anything that's happening to have to be nice to people who are visiting you. And that's the problem. I think half the problem of being a woman is you feel like you have to be nice and pleasant all the time when you really just wanted to scream and say, get out all of those things. Um, so to, <laughs> that took a long time, but to bring us back to how to use art to assuage your trauma. I think that the first day I stepped back in the studio, even though I wasn't dancing. So the first day I stepped back into the studio. So I own a dance school. We've got 10 instructors it runs whether I'm there or not. It was a really hard period when I disappeared one day for three months. 
and it, everyone didn't really know what happened. I didn't tell anyone until the first month when we were both kind of in the safe zone. And to step back in that studio and feel that flow underneath me and see myself in the mirror, erect woman. That is a very painful truth to face. I was so actually, that, you know, that was one thing that I had written down was like, what was it like to go back, you know? Um, yeah. Because so you would have left the studio as one person and come back as a completely different human being. Absolutely. I was nerve-wracked, absolutely nerve-wracked because I was going back into a class just to visit a class to say hi. And I remember as a dancer, you're trained to look in the mirror and be completely detached from what you see because you can't get emotional about your nose or your eyes or your lips or your, the state of your body or how your arm looks. You've just got to look at it and correct it. And I, I think the first few times I avoided any kind of emotional reaction to seeing myself in the mirror. I knew I didn't like what I was seeing. I knew my hair had thinned, my skin was gray, my body looked completely worn out, but I was just happy to be there. And then when I look back on videos now of myself trying some movements in the mirror, I see how broken I was. You know, I see that my grief was held in my ribcage in my armpits. And so I didn't extend my arms like I used to. I see that my feet were struggling to hold my body together. I see that my face was so in a state of fight or flight. You know, it was like, I either get this move or I'm going to die. And I think when you're a dancer, you're used to giving yourself sort of really harsh feedback like that. But to see my face in that state of emotion, to know that if I didn't make that move, I would probably hate myself even more. And that trauma would tell me the lie because trauma does that. Trauma lies to us. Trauma tells us that our safe spaces are very dangerous. Trauma tells us that our living room couch is where you went to die. Uh, trauma tells us that the car is where you were meant to die. Trauma tells us that a hospital that treats us is a place of great tension and danger and screaming and horrible noise. So the job as a person surviving from trauma is to actually unfold the evidence behind those lies and to understand what the real truths are. Which is actually and the journey of all humans, I feel. That's like, right. You know, that's it right. really it's is, particularly in this time and age, yeah, to uncover our truth, to undo all the stories that we have about who we are and, yeah, and how we show up in the world. That is our work in life. That is absolutely right. And that is the primary calling of my coaching. And it's so funny because my, my, my clients call me the spilling the tea woman, you know, the truth woman, the truth bomb woman who uncovers the truth with you. And one of my best-selling workshops is called Discovering You, which is all about coming back into the journey and unfolding from the world that has given us these stories of narratives of who we're supposed to be. So to have to go through that process in such a traumatic time, knowing I had to do it, knowing I had all the tools, this is what I use with people. I just designed a resilience workshop the day this happened. <laughs> And then to have to do it for myself, that's a very different story, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very oh, different yes. process. <laughs> and so, yeah, stepping into the studio with Jenny, deciding to teach again was a huge decision because teaching requires me to go away from my kids, you know, to be at the studio in the evenings. And a lot of people were making commentary such as, how can you leave Harry at home? He just came out of the hospital you need to be there with him. He needs to be with you. And I said to people, you know, he is with his loving father and I need to, I need to become whole again. Otherwise I will be the worst mother for him. And you know what? I'd already been away from him 
Yeah. He'd already been cared for by strangers. Yeah. And he's not thrived. by choice, you know, my gosh. Not by choice. Yeah. But I'd proven the evidence said that a baby didn't need me. A baby needed me. Our baby our baby needed me to become a whole human being for him. Absolutely. And I think that that, that is evident in those first 11, 12 weeks where you weren't able to be physically present, yet yep. your baby went from thrived. Yeah, went from dying to thriving. Yeah. And he thrived. I mean, when on his due date, so when he should have been born, he was five and a half kilos. So that oh is God. what he would have been fair. Oh my God. <laughs> and my obstetrician weighed him and said, he would have killed you either way. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so he thrived. I mean, if you look at him now, I've had emergency pediatricians see meet him on a flight and say, this doesn't look like a primary baby. Are you lying to me? You know, um, he's thrived. And I was the one who had to pick up the pieces because he knew no better. He knows nothing and he remembers nothing of his journey. Isn't and that so it true? It's like as par- as parents and as adults, we project what we think upon our kids. So we project yeah. the idea that they're missing out or that we're not giving them what they need or or whatever it is from our own conditioning as being a child ourselves, you know, or um, and society pressures too. So, yeah, wow. And it's yeah. that core human thing. We've all felt lonely, so we don't want yeah, our children to feel totally. that emotion. We've all felt but, invisible. You know, we've all felt unseen. We've all felt unloved. Unsafe, we've all felt misunderstood, neglected. neglected. Yeah, and it yeah. and it was actually not, you know, it wasn't actually due to our parents being shit human beings. It was due that to was our parents being human, you know. That's right. Or even due to someone else, someone at school, someone, yeah. you know, our, an early provider, someone, you know. So to make that decision to go back to the studio was a very profound one because I was judged for it implicitly and explicitly. And I had to be strong in my firm belief. And this is something that I've always believed that you cannot be a good mum unless you are whole in yourself. And I have always traveled to do my work and my kids have thrived despite my mum traveled when I was a kid and I thrived. So I knew it was possible as long as when I was with them, it was a real beautiful quality time. So I decided I was going back to dancing. And within five months of it happening, I attended my first um, event in Brisbane. I judged a competition and emceed. I didn't dance yet. I wasn't dancing yet. And I remember how shaky my legs were getting up on stage five months after all this had happened. I'd just taken my baby home. This was a community of a thousand people, all who had known what I'd gone through and my legs were shaking. You know, how could I possibly get up in front of these people and say I am whole when I wasn't? I was not whole. I was maybe 30% of the way to where I needed to be. But I did. Every single gig I did, every single event I did was a profound experience in that way because it was a more of a bolstering and a remembrance of my mm. sense of self. I decided to take on different so in my dancing career, I've pretty much reached the pinnacle of where I want to be in the Australian and New Zealand dance scene. And I didn't really need to do much more. I'm in my late 30s, right? How much more dancing can I possibly do? But I decided to take on a different role, which was to mentor someone. And I took on a young woman in the scene who had immense potential. And I decided to mentor her through her journey of becoming, coming to where I am in my career. And we decided to do a routine together, a choreography together. And I wanted to turn the tables on the traditional Latin dance ideal, which was women in tassels and sequins and high heels. 
And I'd done that for all my life. And so I said to her, we're going to do something different and you're going to have to trust me. So we both have short hair and we put on suits and these little spats, you know, men's spats. And we put together a routine that was so masculine, so masculine, guys strutting, swaggering. Um, And we pretended to be two men, but with really feminine movement. And in the process of doing this routine, I found my swagger. You know, I slowly worked through the things that were not feminine in my body. I didn't feel like a woman anymore. My lady parts were broken. My, the very core of who I was as a human being was broken, my womanity. And I needed to do something the opposite of that. I needed to grow into who I wasn't as a woman and to be okay with that, to be okay with not being feminine. And so we did this routine and a year after Harry was born, we performed it in Singapore to an international audience. And incredibly, we got a full standing ovation from the audience because all the women in the audience had never seen anything like it. No one had ever seen two women in the Latin dance industry just get up and say, hang on, we're going to be men. We don't want to be sexy for you. We want to be sexy for us in a masculine way. And that was a really profound moment where I realized that I didn't have to be a woman to be whole. Not that I'm not a woman. I love being a woman. There's nothing wrong with being a woman, but I needed to know the opposite because I felt like I'd lost every part of my femininity. Yeah. I had failed. Yeah. I had failed at the one thing that all women are supposed to do easily. And I think this is what a lot of women who suffer with infertility and miscarriage and loss and pregnancy loss and birthing loss. traumatic, yeah, traumatic birth for sure. Is we think, how come I couldn't do the thing that society tells me I was built to do? Why have I suffered periods all my life if I couldn't even do this one thing properly? And so it was profound. So that was one way I used my art in removing the femininity from my art and putting in the masculinity and actually realizing I was okay with both. The second part of that was learning movement again. And because I'm a dancer and I coach in dancing and I've coached many of the Australian champions to dance at the level that they do, I could look at videos of myself and see where my grief was hiding. That is so amazing because... Uh, before when you were saying you were looking in the mirror and you could see your grief in your shoulders and your arms and and your um you know and your legs uh and feet like you're grounding it is so powerful right like just the the way we hold our body can say so much about where we are emotionally it's incredible i in my dance practice i've actually sometimes you know i'll have a one on one coaching lesson in dancing And then I'll say to the woman, usually a woman, because men aren't always as receptive, I've found. But with I I sometimes will say, come with me to the mirror. And I'll say, something's happened to you in your life. And I don't know what it is, but you're holding it. And I'll say, you know, their hip, their shoulder, their tummy. And I'm always spot on about it. And I'll say, I need you to do an exercise with me. And it's a breathing and stretching exercise just for that part of the body. And so often they end up in tears. Mm profound tears. And once they've, and they go, how did you know? And I go, well, I don't know how I know. I just knew, but it's that combination of being a dancer and a coach. You know, it's the two things I'm tapped into people's hearts and I'm also tapped into people's bodies. And I can tell you without a doubt, I can walk around a room and say, this is where you're holding your grief. Something's happened to you. And everyone's had something happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. This is the commonality of human existence. If you say to someone, tell me what makes you cry, they all have an answer. And so I yeah, decided it's, to it's such a powerful question too, right? It's one that I yeah. um have been asked in 
you know, circles and coaching that I've done myself and one that I ask and that, you know, what, what does break your heart about the world? It's so individual yet it's often, you know, there, there are definitely common threads and yeah. And I, and I, I just love that piece around the, because we all like, I don't know if we all know, but, um, you know, the body does hold our emotions and, Absolutely. When we don't express them, that's when they kind of, for want of a better term, manifest into things. So yep. sore shoulders, you know, sh- shoulders are around grief, aren't they? Because they're around the yep. lungs and, yeah. So shoulders um, here, uh, around the pecs, around the heart, as well as tummy. And what I found in my coaching practice is so many of the clients that I coach in just life uh, they end up having no longer, they end up no longer having food intolerances. They end up having much more peaceful gut and bowel symptoms than they ever used to because they've healed their heart mm. and they were holding the grief in their tummy. And so because I believe it's intrinsically linked, that's how I treated my body. So every single day I had to do one thing that fed my body and one thing that fed my heart. And that was my only two milestones per day for six months, you know, one thing. And that one thing could be, I took my painkillers on time. It was that simple. Or I took my vitamins or I ate some chicken soup. Um, and one thing for my heart and the heart thing usually revolved around two things, which was, I asked for help, which was a big deal for, I think all of us, I physically asked for explicit help, or I tapped inwards and took time out from the world and shared what I was going through without necessarily being present in the world. And I think both those things really helped me. Having an attitude of sharing meant that I could allow people to come into my grief and help me where I needed it. Um, and then, you know, when you, when you pass that first six months, what happens then is that you kind of feel healthy 50 or 60% of the time. And the problem with that is then you start feeling guilty. And the trauma makes us guilty. And that's another thing to pass through your body because guilt is, I think, the biggest thing that stops our body from working the way it should. Guilt and shame Shame. are the two biggest human emotions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, you sit there thinking, I can never repay everyone who who had helped me. I started walking into the studio feeling immense shame because my students had supported me so much and I could never thank them enough. Um, why were they still in my presence when I couldn't dance properly and I couldn't show them what they were meant to be doing? Why should they trust me? Why should they pay me? Even in my coaching business, you know, I'm broken. How can I help other people? Why do I think I can help other people? And that guilt and shame because is something you're broken. that I'm still going through. You know, I think this is the That's key, right? right? Like I've actually been working all day today. I've been in back-to-back sessions with clients and it has been that. Like how can I help people when I'm not there? And it's like where? That's right. <laughs> because where? Where? Exactly. Did you ever reach a stage in your life and you feel like I'm a perfect human yeah. being? No. Where, where do you think you need to be? Because, you know, where you are is where you can help people. <laughs> and we don't need to have our shit together. In, in fact, it's, it's often, I've, from my experience, it's always been the more I can share from those deeper, you know, more shadow aspects of myself, the deeper I can connect with people and the more I can impact them, you know. So, yeah, we don't need to be anywhere except from where we are and be willing then to share of that. 
Yeah, and this is why I have. A, I think I have a big problem with the, you know, um, the, I feel like there's two divides in coaching, right? There's the yes. people who are like, I have it all, and you can be like me. Yeah, and Zero. I can't stand that. Yeah, you know, it drives me insane. And then there's the look, we're all on a journey, and do you need some help? Because I can probably help you. And that's probably the kind of coach I am. Um, but yeah, the, the, but because that's the kind of coach I am, I kind of feel like that guilt is something we have to w- be working through on a daily basis. And the thing about, like I said, trauma lies to you. Trauma tells you you should feel shame and guilt for something you haven't done wrong. And then, of course, you've got to tune out the outside people, right? The people who wonder why you want dancing like you were. But it's been a year. You know, the people who wonder if you should be dancing at all. The people who ask you if you're sure you didn't know that this was going to happen or did you not, did you do something? Do they think the dancing did this to you? You know, three days before it happened, you were dancing. Did that, did that break your uterus open? And I sort of have to explain to them that basic biology means that's not how the body works. But having to explain that is traumatic in itself, you know? So using art to heal from the trauma was really beautiful and profound, but it also in a way brought on a lot more difficulty because had I not my art is very public. It's not painting in a garage. I wish it was painting. I wish it was something. Yeah, but I it's could your body. To, but it's you know, I mean, that. I mean, how powerful is that? It's your body that you've been experiencing this trauma, and I imagine disconnection from, and a complete relearning Just, and so reconnection. Yeah, you know, like, um, and then having to be in that body, performing in front of people. Uh, that, and trust it. And trust, trust it. it. Me when it's let you down, you know, like that must be. So bad. Yeah, must be. In, I'm just like totally covered in goosebumps right now. It must be very confronting. Well, I will say that I think we all have conversations with our body, right? And I find that the people who are most in tune with what their body's doing and the love they have for their body that allows them to do physical things in this world I think that's where we need to find that connection and most people are disconnected. And to look at this body that I had treated so well, I felt, and say, why have you done this to me? What have I done to you that made you do this to me? I love you. You know, I love you, body. You know, Which I've is never so been... different to other, other people. Like most people hate most their people. bodies. And like I'm speaking and from my own experience, right it's like, you know, I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, you know, whatever, whatever's going on that day, you fat yeah. piece of shit. You've <laughs> got the boobs and you've got the butt yeah, and you've got yeah. the little waist. And yeah, exactly. And like I'm just dick. constantly it's comparing so mine against other people. <laughs> yeah, and and touch wood hasn't let me down at all. Yeah, I have no trust in it. And then and then you have yeah. the opposite experience of that, where you have deep love and deep trust, and then to go through this thing that um, makes you question all of that in something that has. Obviously, to get to that level, you have some real connection to dance, right, and to moving your body yes. in that way. And, in fact, I imagine it is a big part of who you are in terms of your identity. So then to come to this place where mm-hmm. it lets you down, where you feel disconnected from it. So badly. But you still have to perform in it. Um, yes. Yeah. And, yeah, like the separateness yeah. that you must have felt. Yeah, or even just waking up from the coma. And you know what had happened is that I had bruises down my arms and my legs and my body. So even though I had this huge gaping scar across my womb, 
I had all these bruises on me and scratches from the flailing and the struggling and them holding me down and things like that. And it was quite violent in that ICU room um, where they were trying to save me. But I had all these bruises that I could not explain, you know, big, big bruises all over me. And I remember thinking, whose is this body? I usually know so much what's happening with my body. How can I not even remember getting these bruises? And and when you sit there and look at your body and you don't even recognize it, and I'm someone who sees my body every day in a mirror, scantily clad, you know, I know what my naked body looks like so, so much. To sit there and say, where did this come from? Why does my body look like this was so foreign. And to not have control over it. So for the last 18 months, what I experienced is every time I exerted myself, my tummy would swell up like I was six months pregnant because my uterus would flare. And to not have control over that as a dancer wearing a skimpy costume, to have people come up to me and say, oh, my goodness, you're expecting again when I I cannot have babies anymore, um, was just it would just, my body was forcing me to relive that trauma again and again and mm. again. And I could go down two roads. I could love it or I could hate it. And I think for the first six months, I probably hated it fair enough too. But then there begins this journey of, I have to learn to love my body. I have to video myself dancing, no matter how much I hate how it looks, because I'm not the, the dancer I used to be. I have to start doing a show again, even though I don't want to perform. I don't want people to see me naked, so to speak, raw. When you're in front of an audience, you're always raw. And I don't want people to see that because I'm not ready. But I had to because that was my process of finding and loving my body again. To actually sit there and say, my legs are strong and I love you because you are strong. My chest is strong and I love you because you're strong. That was so difficult to do when I hated my body for what it had done to me. It was crazy. Yeah. Crazy times. Wow. Just so a gen- Yeah, absolutely. So where are you like so you've you've just gone yeah. back in for surgery and yes. Where Okay, so where where do you feel dance lives in your life now? And actually during so during the period where you've come back in 9 weeks into your body and you're mm. back to this And then place, I lost it again. <laughs> yeah. So you come back into your body and you are, um, you know, starting to dance again. Was the love of dance well, still yet. there? I'm not allowed to. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, right. So the love for dance. So I was, I was very lucky. And I will say this, that art is emotionally traumatic in itself. I think all artists would agree with me that we are slave to our art. And unfortunately, ego is very important in art. And how successful you are is a function in your head of what your ego wants your art to be. So some people need Fuck to become yes. commercially successful in order yeah. to be, to feel yeah. successful, right? Yeah. Some people need to just have produced their best art. And when does an artist ever feel like they're producing their best art? You know, And never. often it's when they when they produce like a, their shittest work or they feel it's their shittest work. It's the one that <laughs> resonates with people. And you're like, what the fuck? I, you know, I try so hard to create. Yeah, and then I've created this piece of shit and everyone loves it. <laughs> Well, uh, this masculine piece, we did three sessions. We did it in three sessions. It was nothing. It was like I didn't even break a sweat doing it. <laughs> so, and then that's the one we got crazy international acclaim for. So I was very lucky that I was already what I regarded as successful in my career. 
because to be doing it as a part-time career, to be one of Australia's most lauded judges, I was always asked to judge every competition in Australia. I am at almost every event there is in the Asia Pacific. Um, I saw other dance schools, what we do in our dance school. So I was very lucky in the sense that I already felt like I was at the pinnacle of my career. So everything that I lost came back very quickly as soon as I was ready. So within a year of having Harry and all that stuff happen, people, event organizers were already saying, when are you coming back? You know, we want you back. So actually the confidence and the ego part of my art was simple. I was getting the evidence that I needed to say that I was wanted in my industry. I was needed in my industry. Um, in November, I was presented with an achievement award for everything I'd contributed in the Australian Latin dance industry in front of a thousand people. You know, that was a really profound moment for me because women generally in my industry don't make it on their own. They need a business partner or a dance partner. And I've done it all on my own. So that was really profound. So I was very lucky in the sense that I'm getting, I, I got a lot of the external evidence. Now I say lucky. And then my best friend will say, but you worked for that luck. And I think it's a combination of both. So I've managed to go back and then I've had to go into surgery three days after receiving that award and then now be useless again for a few months. And in this last week, interestingly, leading up to this interview, I have struggled this last week. So the nine weeks after surgery, I've been so good, so much clarity. This is what I'm going to do when I'm back to work with both my businesses, both my arts, art forms, because coaching, I feel, is an totally. art form. I'm sure Absolutely. you'll agree. Yeah, It is. And um, I've been had so much clarity. But in this last week, I've really struggled. And it is that guilt thing. It is that why am I not back yet? it's only been nine weeks. I've got a 12 week certificate, medical certificate. So who's beating myself up? Just me, just, just good old me. <laughs> but this is what we do. This is what trauma does. We, it makes us lie to ourselves and tells us the shoulds of the world. And we need to fight that every single day. So I just did a live today, for example, on my Instagram feed about guilt and, you know, what we need to do about it when we feel that feeling of guilt, when we, we know that there's a path, if we're following that path, don't feel guilty everyone has a path. And it's easier said than done because I've struggled with it. So where am I now? I am at a stage where I don't need to do anything in my dancing career anymore. So I've decided I'm just going to play with the art of it. Ironically, as soon as I made that decision, two of the biggest gigs of my life got offered to me for 2019. <laughs> so I'll be the first I'll be the first Australian artist at the end of this year to be performing at the Berlin Salsa Congress, which is 5,000 people. It's an internationally acclaimed event. And I'll be the first Australian artist ever to have been invited. Wow. And I said to him, the guy who runs the event, I said, um, you know, I'm not going to be dancing at full form. And he looked at me and said, you've survived what you've survived. You will be dancing. I, I can assure you, even if you don't know it, I know it. And that gives you immense trust. You know, people trust me. So I, I will deliver because... If they know it, how come I don't know it? Absolutely. And all that you've been through feeds into the passion of what you create from here too, right? It's like it, it is the thing that feeds us. It is the thing that um, yes. pushes us, not necessarily pushes us, but gives us the inspiration to create. We can use all of our experience. We can use all of our pain. We can use all of our joy and our love and everything to create things. And when we create from those places, that's the place where it connects with people, right? It's why your dance, the masculine dance, connected because it came from that place. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. And gift. how many women do we know who don't feel connected to their femininity? And so that gift for them was that we don't have to be connected to our femininity all the time. That's going to let us down, but we have to be connected to ourselves. Yeah, and that is genderless. You know, it really is. 
yeah, it's completely genderless and we have to work from our pain. We have to. Every human being, whether you're an artist or not, and the word artist is just a label in the end, right? Right. You know, um, I think that we have to work from our pain no matter what we do. Otherwise, we don't self-actualize. And if we don't self-actualize, then we don't heal. And so what the interesting thing for me is the dancing serves as healing. So for me, going back to dancing is just a natural state of affairs. It's what I do. But going back to coaching is where I feel has been this whole experience has really changed. So I was doing corporate coaching full time and I was fairly doing very well at it. Corporate coaching pays much better than in-person coaching. <laughs> it, I had work, I had word of mouth clients. Um, you know, I was doing fine. And every, every single year for the last 10 years, everyone that I do executive coaching with says, you have to do retreats and workshops. You have to get out to the public. You have to get out to more people, like not just do this for corporates because what you do is so human. And I, I was like, eh, eh. and this whole experience has showed me that that's where my heart is. What everyone was telling me all along, the universe was sending me this message all along that I need to get out there. So my coaching practice now will be transforming this year. And I'm scared shitless because I was so established in what I was doing. And now I'm moving towards doing corporate coaching only 50% of the time and devoting my other 50% of my life to I call the real human beings of the world, you know, not just someone who works for an organization that happened to hire me in. And I'm really scared because I've never done this before. I know it'll change my income pattern. I know it means I have to put myself out there so much more. I've got to actually do the podcast and the lives and the <laughs> everything else that I hadn't done for the last 10 years. What is this? And so the day I made that decision, Carly, you came onto that Facebook group and said, <laughs> I'm looking for women to do this. And I just ordered my microphone for my podcast. I went, <laughs> okay. Amazing. <laughs> All right. This is a sign. This <laughs> is a sign. It was amazing. And yeah, so this is, I think that's actually where the art's going to feed me next is that, am I going to be okay making new art? Cause in dancing, I feel like I've kind of done a lot of it and I will continue to grow in that, but in a different way. Whereas coaching this new phase of coaching I'm going to is my new art. It's my new method of healing and it's going to be an interesting journey. I love that because, you know, part every single episode I can't stop reiterating how this is not just a podcast about grabbing a paintbrush and expressing yourself on a canvas. It's a podcast about, <laughs> you know, fi finding ways that, that feed your soul to express yourself. And for me, it's this, right? It's having conversations. It's, pod it's using my voice. Uh, that is my art. So, and right now, while dance has been your art, and I'm sure it will continue to serve and feed you, but then you also have this other element now that you're stepping to, which is art, and that can be coaching. You know, it can be, it can be entrepreneurship, it can be startups, it can be whatever the fuck you want it yeah. to be. Um, the key well, is I think of that it humanity. Yes, exactly, right? So and and that's what this is really all about. Make some noise. It's really just about, you know, a self-actualization journey through expression because it's when we uh move through those fears, when we're faced with those trauma and the and the guilt and the shame and all of the things that make us human and we move forward through that instead of allowing us to retreat from it when we express out rather than go inward that is what makes some noise is about right it's it's not just about the art it's about the expression no. of who you are that's exactly right and you know it's that 
that sense of if you don't try, how do you know? Totally. You don't. <laughs> and expression is, by virtue of the word, expression is connection. 100%. Yes. Connection to self, connection to others. Yeah. Connection to environment, you know, con- connection to everything. Yeah. Everything is connection. You know, connection is everything. Yeah. No, I think it is exactly that. And and I think before, actually, the second part of that is that dancing and coaching for me were two very separate things. So I had my day job, which is my own business. I have two, I own two businesses and my day job, or rather my day business is my coaching business and my evening job is, and the weekend job is my dancing business. And they were both quite successful in their own right. And I was happy with where they were, but this is the first time in my life I feel so profoundly that I need to connect the two. Oh my God. Yes. I can so feel that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, um, it's interesting. I've led workshops for women in finding their sensuality and finding their womanity through movement. I've led workshops for women in um, leadership and how connection with the body leads to us being better leaders. You know, I've led all these kinds of workshops, but I've never implicitly joined the two. Mm. And so this is going to be a very interesting year for me because as I wade through that, how am I going to connect the two and use my existing programs in a way that really serve people through their bodies? Because I have lived being so disconnected from my body and how that stops me in life. Yeah, a new expression because you're like, you know, you're a new human. Yeah, literally, I'm the bionic woman. (laughs) I went from being Frankenstein to being the bionic woman. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That was the word my surgeon used. He goes, he goes, you were Frankenstein, but now you're cleaned up now. You're great. So beautiful. So where can people connect with you um, and learn more about what you're doing in the world? Okay, so on Instagram in my personal coaching business, so my human I call it my humanity truth bomb coaching. Uh, I'm on the Empowerus, which is a space where I seek to empower people by helping us all learn about our humanity and our, you know, selves. And then in my business coaching, so where I do my corporate coaching work, but also coaching for businesses and entrepreneurs and things like that, it's the Trailblazer Tribe. And the entire story that I just told you is laid out on my personal Instagram, which is just Sharon Fakir. Beautiful. I'll have links. Mm, I'll, I'll send you the links if you want me to. On Facebook, I've got a group called the Trailblazer Tribe, and it's a group of about 600 people who connect on different things around humanity growth. And if you like any of that stuff, which I'm guessing people do because they're listening to this podcast, then it's a great group to be in because it's all people who are just lovely and nurturing and all wanting to be whole through the process of self-growth. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I actually feel really privileged that I've been the first to physically hear it. It's such an incredible, powerful story. And how can it not, you know, how can it not lead to amazing new frontier, you know, like the trailblazing tribe. It's like, I feel it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Carly. I'm so grateful. And um, yeah, you are, this will be the first time it's been aired, published um, in a vocal format where people actually hear the tone of my voice shake as I go through the motions. So I'm actually really, I feel really good right now. Thank you so much for giving us this platform. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I am surprised you didn't shed a few tears. I was here like with a few (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> beating at the back of my Shaking. eyeballs. <laughs> it's such a beautiful story. So thanks Look, again. I think I think it's just no worries. And I will be sharing it on all my um socials. So I would love to share what you do. It's just a beautiful thing that Thank you're doing. You. I do feel like there's um 
yeah, like a lot of crossovers um, in terms of your message and stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, thank you so we'll much for your touch. time. Yeah, we definitely will. All the no best. Worries. Thank you, Carly. No Let worries. me know when it goes live. Will do. Oh, wait, 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 oh. wait. We have to take a selfie. We have to take a <laughs> selfie. Can I make this work? There we go. Say cheese. There we go. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. I'll catch you later. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap. Go to carlynimo.com to find ways to connect to your creativity and live life on your frequency. Until next week, make some 